Welcome to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. I'm Rebecca Plum, your big sister. And I'm Sean Serha, your GBF. We're not that hot or that young. But we believe it's a state of mind that helps us build adaptable and profitable businesses. We rely on the support of our design besties to get through each day. So let's explore the emotional, practical, and humorous sides of being interior designers. Welcome to the club. Hey, Sean. What's up, Rebecca? We have an exciting day. We have a fun guest today. Yes, I know it's been a minute since we brought our hotties another designer to bring in some new perspectives for us. So I'm stoked. Yes, today we have Susan Winterstein with us, who we have had on our list forever and have really wanted to talk to her and pick her brain. And well, let's just say hi. Hi, Susan. Hey, how are you? I'm so happy to be on here. So thank you very much for the invite. Of course. Welcome. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your business? Yeah. So I am the principal designer and part owner of Savvy Interiors. Um, My husband and I own it together. As the CEO and president, I oversee uh, six designers, so three different design teams. And we've got a couple people on procurement, uh, construction coordinator, and we are also licensed general contractors in the state of California. And then I work with my husband, who is our CFO, who does all of the reporting and financial pieces that I need to see in order to make strategic decisions about the business. Lucky. Yeah. I don't think I don't think I could work with my husband. I I couldn't either, but I wish that I could and he could do that. (laughs) It's a challenge sometimes. I won't lie. We've had uh, it took us some time to kind of get our groove and find our lanes, but we're there. So and you have other family members in your business too, right? I do. Uh, Our daughter, uh, I have five daughters and our fourth daughter. I know. uh, Fourth daughter came to I know. It's a lot. She came to work with us about a year ago. So she's working on operations and procurement side, uh, kind of starting and dabbling her toes in in design a little bit. Awesome. I mean, that would be really fun. My daughter's only eight and she already like kind of tries to shadow me and fancies herself a little interested in it. So nice. That would be awesome. I think it's cool Um, that she started at the beginning too. Like you're having her start like, Nope. Let's yeah. get you in on the grittier side of this business. So you understand like, yeah. it's not all just like fun fabrics or like site, yeah. you know, cool site visits every day. It's like, hold on. If you like, yeah. the, if you like this sort of behind the scenes part of the business enough that you want to stick around for the other stuff. Okay. Then let's keep, let's keep going. Yeah. Well, you know, she was an early childhood education major and she was going to go into teaching when COVID hit. And then everything kind of went sideways. And ever since she was little, you can tell sometimes by the way somebody dresses or puts themselves together, like they have an eye for pattern or texture or proportion or scale Mm -hmm. or whatever. And ever since she was little, all of our kids have been fairly creative and have wound up in creative fields. But with her, I kept saying, you're going to be a designer. You're going to be a designer. She's like, no, I'm not. I'm never going to be a designer. Never want to do that. And I said, okay, all right, fine, whatever. And then, so she came to work with us on the procurement because she's a really good organization and she's really good at list making and following through. And so then as she started to do that, she's starting to decorate her own apartment and everything. She's like, what do you think of this? And she's putting things together. And I I told you, you were a designer. (laughs) And so she's like, well, I kind of like it now. And I see the fun. And so she's, it's a dabble. So I think she's, it's definitely in there, but she's very good at her job, which is like the organizational piece in part. And 
helping keeping the wheels on the bus. So, so important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I know, I feel like there are quite a few partners that have that CEO and then CFO relationship in this industry. Mm -hmm. And I, I think Sean and I have talked about this before where it would be like, I desperately feel like I need that for my brain. Like my brain, it does not have the like finances yeah. side, mm-hmm. but it would be so hard to trust. So to have that built into your like most trusted relationship partner. It's interesting amazing. because most people think when they hear that we are co-owners that John's the general contractor and I'm the designer, mm-hmm. right? And they think he's <laughs> coming in here and running projects and I'm I'm the designer putting the pretty things on. And the firm actually holds the license and I do all the general contracting and oversee the design team. But, you know, I stayed, I was a stay-at-home mom for the, I don't know, first 10 years life of my kids. And then he was corporate America and we flipped and he became kind of stay-at-home dad. And I went to work more full-time during the recession just because the demand for business was there. And he really didn't want to go back to working a corporate job. And so it was a process of identification of how he could be of best value to the company and what he is providing and what he can do better than what I can do. And so definitely he's a reports and graphs kind of guy. And so he's really good at kind of looking at the big picture and drilling down all the numbers for me. And so that's super helpful because I'm a, I'm a big math person. Like I love math and I love numbers, but being able to see it in different ways that I wouldn't take the time to do it was super helpful. Yeah. Taking the time to have that be your number one focus. Yeah. And it's such a different part of your brain if you have the creative brain too, that like it's, I mean, I literally have to take a different day to do that stuff because I can't flip. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I kind of want to dig in a little bit on the, on the math of it. Do you feel like there is a certain piece of data or a certain figure or report that you're looking for that you're like, oh, this is one of those health of my business type of numbers that I look at every month. Like, even if they're quick hits mm-hmm. for some of our listeners who maybe don't have the mm-hmm. same, you know, a lot of our listeners are newer designers, so they might not even know that something in their QuickBooks or their reports is important yet. Do you have any thoughts on right. some that are like, I check these every month, got to see them. Like, or day. Yeah. Or day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or day. So uh, there's, oh, there's so many that he checks every day. But I think from yeah. at my view, that 10,000 view of looking at the business as a whole, I would say sales reports and projections are probably the number one. So our designers that work with us work on a quarterly sales cycle where they are commissioned on profitability. So they have certain numbers that they need to make. And my role is making sure that we're making those sales so that they're successful and get, they're getting their commissions. I would say that if, you know, monthly we're really low on sales and we need to like take some other jobs that maybe are on the periphery or something that somebody else that we pull up or something like that to get those sales numbers consistent quarter after quarter so that we can project out the year ahead of time and figure out like what our tax liability is going to be as a business. And, you know, what are we, what are we like? I don't want to get hit with a big tax bill at the end of the year. And then obviously like making sure that all of our POs are accurate and all of our expenses are accurate. So we know what that true profitability number is. And then really the gist of all of that really drills down to what is your cost of doing business? What's your cost of keeping your doors open? What do you need in your business to satisfy all of the overhead, not just your gross profitability, but once you start to do your net net out, you know, like 
this is how much the copy or ink costs. This is how much the software programs cost. This is how much all of these things and keeping an eye on what those operating costs are to get to that net profit margin. And is that what you need to keep your business viable? Right. So those are all of the numbers. So I know what my keep the door, you know, open number is every month to make payroll. I know what my number is to like break even where my break even threshold is. And then I know where, you know, my shoot for the moon land and the stars number is like, I know what I want to do. And then I know what at minimum it takes to kind of just like break even and cover all of my expenses and cover my salary and cover my husband's salary and all of the commissions. And what is that number? So Mm -hmm. those are kind of the numbers that I look at consistently to make sure that we're either hitting our goals or how far we are from our goals and educating our team on, you know, this is what you need to do in order to get to our goals by the end of the quarter. That's, uh, I think I've seen you, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I've seen you like post, we're taking on like a one room furnishing project right now. Is Mm -hmm. that what you're, so you're doing that when you see when I say that somebody's really close to making their threat, so we have thresholds, they have to have a certain profitability each quarter. So each design team or the lead designer in each team has a sales number of about a hundred thousand in net profitability. So that's gross sales minus our costs. If they hit that number, then they're eligible for commission. And so my role is I want to make them as successful as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that they make those numbers. So if it's a matter of, well, you need a $10,000 sale to kind of get there, or you need a this, yeah. or or more often, it's not even really about the numbers in that situation. It's more about, I finished all my design work here. I finished this. We're waiting for construction to start over here. I've got like three weeks where mm-hmm. I don't, I could take on one project, but I can't have something so big that it interferes down here. So strategically, Hey, we can take this on to fill that hole in that gap while we're waiting on something else to happen. So that's more the reason for posting those things versus the finances. Because at that point it's more like an extra, you know, I don't, smaller jobs typically aren't overly profitable. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's not really accounting for probably their sales goals as much as I may think it is. It's it's more of just kind of getting the design and being able to turn it over and do something that's quick. Like you see a hole in the schedule and yeah, exactly. you know you can fill it. Let's keep yeah, everybody awesome. working so we're not losing exactly. that. Exactly. Keep them busy, momentum. the momentum. And, and it's fun for them. I mean, let's face it, like designers want to design, right? They don't really mm-hmm. want to order a doorknob and they don't want to really draw out a specification sheet or a work order. No. But if I get all my work done, then I really just show me a cool room and let me just design a room. And, you know, you yeah. can design that fairly quick. That's the fun part. So if they have the time to do that and we can accommodate that, then that's a good filler project between other bigger ones. Yeah. And as well as being able to say yes, probably to things that you're normally turning down feels nice to do sometimes. Yeah. And there's no such thing as, I mean, small projects lead to big projects, right? If you Mm -hmm. do a good job for Mm -hmm. someone that has something small, women are tremendously loyal. Um, And so if you develop that relationship with someone and you just are doing a room and we can accommodate it, then it's more likely that they'll either refer you or they'll have you back for something bigger. Um, because they don't want to start over with somebody new, right? So that's always advantageous to try to sprinkle those in to kind of give you that overall diversification of of what areas you're working in. And it's a form of networking, I guess, like mm-hmm. you're meeting yeah. just people. I mean, the word of mouth in our business is so huge. Yes. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by how so many of, of our other designers that are, are working, we really are the principals, even guests we've talked to. It's mm-hmm. we're 
we are the everything for a lot of the firms and a lot of smaller mm-hmm. firms. That makes sense. That's kind of where everything begins. And so in the strategies that you were just sharing, it really does start to underscore where the role of like being the CEO of your company and being the creative director mm-hmm. fits that like that speaks to what that strategy is you were just sharing is like, this is a gap in our business, but you're, it's not. Susan's going to jump in and design that one room. It's like a member of our team is going to do it. I'm finding the gap. I'm going to coach them to the goal. I'm going to get them to the standards and what we need to do. But it's not I'm jumping in and micromanaging some project or I'm getting in there and pulling in the weeds with the team on all of these details. But it speaks to the overall strategy that you have to have. Yeah, it, it is an overall collaborative process, the way our process works. So there are principles that will hire designers and give them, and I, it's the way I used to work years ago, is I would hire other designers as contract employees or as employees. And I would say, here's this kitchen project, go off and do it. And I didn't really get involved unless there was a problem or a client came back and was upset about something. And that's one way to work. You can outsource some of your design work and have other designers work for you and do their design work. Um, I shifted uh, years ago. I had designers that were doing, let's say, just furniture, and I was doing all the construction projects. And then when COVID hit and we were all working remotely and Zoom became like ubiquitous, it became apparent that, hey, I can do this with our design team and still be involved, just not on the day-to-day. And as I matured in the design career, one of the things that probably exhausts me the most is dealing with that stream of consciousness of a client. So I like to have very little interaction with a client, right? It's like, <laughs> uh, and you guys have probably, you're laughing because you probably already we know this. So you talking to, we were just this talking about this yesterday, like yeah. just talking about it. Yeah. So I want to do the fun stuff. <laughs> I want to do the fun stuff, which is design, but I don't want to talk to the client about it. So when anybody asks me, like, what's your biggest challenge in design? I'm like the people, people, just people like Mm -hmm. give me isolation room and I'll design until the cows come on, but I just don't (laughs) want to deal with people. And it's usually that stream of consciousness that when you're working with a client, you'll get to 95% of the design and then they'll have an issue with one item. And then they'll go, well, can I see three other lights? And then you go, okay. And then you look and look and look, and then you come back with these three other lights and they always come back and they choose the original selection because they realize that you've already done all of that. And then they figure out that, oh yeah, you were right. I really like that first one that you showed me. And you are smart enough and I didn't miss out on something amazing. Like, right. So basically I turned to the structure of, I still want to have my fingerprint on every design. I still have certain standards that I want to see. I want happier clients. I want clients to know that I'm involved, but they're not going to get access to me 24-7. And I wanted a design team that was comfortable working with me and having me provide feedback and input on the design and was okay with that, that the design is collaborative and that we're going all in on one design. It's not your design or my design, you guys pick. It's we sat down together and I gave my feedback. You gave me your feedback. We worked on it. We worked on it. And this is what I'd like to see. And then as that process evolved, we really got into more design discovery with the client. And I started to teach, in addition to like design, teach how to listen to a client because they'll basically design their space for you. Mm-hmm. And you're doing you're just putting all those puzzle pieces together. But they, if you listen, they will tell you what they want. And so 
Now we do a lot more design discovery on a kickoff meeting where I'm on that meeting, the design team's on that meeting. We're doing that deep dive into that design process. And then the designers go off and design it, draft it, put it together. And we start picking all of those materials collaboratively till we get to that presentation day. So I feel like my, you know, my head is in it. I know what's being designed. I'm comfortable with what they're going to put forward. If that designer was going to quit tomorrow, I would still feel proud to install that space. And so it has to be reflective of what I like, because at the end of the day, it's going to be me. If everybody quit tomorrow, which they've done that, then, you know. I'm just, it's just me. So I want, I don't want to install something that I don't like or that I wouldn't have designed myself. So what are the different roles of your six employees? Okay. So we have 11 total. Oh yeah. So six designers maybe? Six designers. Yeah. So I have three, I break them into three design teams. And so each team is what we call, we have a D1, D2, D3, and D4. D1 is a junior, what would be like a junior designer. So I should back up for that in our structure, we would do like, let's say an intern would move to design assistant, would move to junior designer. Okay. So by the time they're a junior designer, they should be a college graduate with a degree and one or two years experience in the design field. And then they come in as a junior designer. They're usually paired with a lead designer, which is a D2. And then we, D3 is when a D2 has developed junior designer into a lead, then they are overseeing that new role. They're the management team for that new lead role. So anyway, so we have uh, three different design teams. Each design team takes on certain projects that are called our key projects. And key projects are usually projects anywhere between three and 400,000, 200,000, like a kitchen, a primary bath, a full house renovation, like little more of that remodeling and furniture, but all encompassed like one project. Uh, Signature projects are where I'm working towards doing those exclusively. Signature projects, we take on two to three of those a year. And those are like, like it needs our whole team on it. Like it can't just be two people or it would take us a year to do it. We need all six designers, myself, everybody cohesively working on that project so that two people are working on these rooms, two other people are working on these rooms over here and they're all report to me. And I go, yes, yes, no, I like that. Let's not do that. Let's do this. And then we're working on it as a whole team. And those are signature projects. Like new New construction or or like whole new house. They're kind of a mix. One is a new build. One is a full renovation gut. And then one is okay. like, um, or two of them this year have been uh, large scale full house remodels working with other builders uh, where we're not the build team. Okay. Like we have this one project that we're working on right now. There's another builder on it, but they've subbed out all of the cabinetry tile countertops uh, you know, bathroom stuff, they've said all that out to us. So our team is installing oh, all of that, but they're doing the whole shell of everything else. So they've just kind of subbed parts of the job out to us. So the signature projects are really where my heart is. That's like, those are those creative things that you just love. Like those are your favorite projects, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. I can't wait to get super creative. Like this has a little bit more to offer me than another white and brown kitchen. Um, <laughs> so not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that no. we've done so, so many that that is our bread and butter. That is our every day. And that's what yeah. makes the designers their commissions and supports them and everything so that I can have the luxury of just doing the signature projects. Awesome. 
So that's the structure. And then we have two people on procurement. So they're responsible for tracking all of our items, ordering all of our items, making sure all the invoicing is correct, all the purchase orders are correct, all the delivery information is correct, all of that sort of thing. And then we have one construction coordinator, which is a new position for us that I'm still training on. And I'm working with him on basically mentoring him, grooming him to be a full project manager on our construction. Because right now the designers do most of the project management. And I want him to be kind of centralize all communications through him with our vendors so that we get out of all of the designers calling the vendors throughout the day and them getting annoyed. So... Oh, because the different designers are calling the same vendor. (laughs) Yeah, like our cabinet maker, right? By the time he gets a call from every design team uh, with a question, he's just like, I have no time to call any of you people back. And so, yeah, he's dreading uh, picking up the phone now. Yeah, it's the same thing we got to with procurement is before I had uh, Steven doing procurement, uh, all of our designers were ordering things on their own. And so a vendor would get a pricing request or they'd order something and they didn't know who to send it back to. Mm -hmm. They're like, Uh, I don't know which designer this was, but here you go. And so it really streamlined that role when I got somebody in there that was just solely responsible for orders. And we have a generic, you know, buyer at Savvy Interiors email. And so everything goes through that. And then he can kind of help manage it for all the different designers. So they go through him to order samples or they go through him to get answers on things. So it it makes it easier on the vendors because then they develop that relationship, right? And so it gives them a chance to get to know our reps and then ask for favors and all that stuff. That sounds amazing. Because I'm like the centralized person of all of those things. Like, (laughs) yeah, I know. I did it too. I mean, I, that was the first couple of years of business, right? Was, it was just me. And, uh, and the advantage of that is that you know how to do all different parts of the job and make it successful. So you know what's involved in it. So when you hire and train someone, you know that it's not impossible because you've been doing it. And so then you get to train somebody and then they, you know, ultimately the hope is, is that the next person gets trained by them to do even better than how you were doing it. That would definitely not be that hard, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) So how, who, like, what position was your first hire? And secondly, go, looking back, what would you suggest should have been your first hire? It's a great it's question. Same. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. My first hire was a friend, which is like the big no no, right? Mm-hmm. Don't hire your friends. I overpaid, grossly overpaid her because I was so like touched and like, oh my gosh, you're going to come work with me. This is unbelievable. Like, yeah. really? You want to work for my little business? Like, that's mm-hmm. so great. Thank you so much for helping me out. She had zero experience in the design field, just like design. And I thought because I had zero experience that, well, everybody must know what I know. Like I had zero experience starting my business. I had no business starting a business. And I had no, I have no degree in design. I had no training in design. I never worked for another design firm. So I had absolutely, I just figured that if I figured it out, this person could figure it out. And that's not always the case. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have any criteria around who to hire. And it was more just come over here and help me measure and help me put things in proposals and help me just just help me do some of the things that I don't need to do that I can teach you to do and you can do them. I think for everybody, their first hire, it's going to be really dependent on what where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. Knowing who you are and your personality type, if you're like 
like you said, like, I don't like the numbers. I'm not good at it. Somebody could do this better. I need to outsource that. Or uh, some for somebody, it might be social media or marketing. And it might be like, I have no interest in marketing, social media. So let me focus on design and let me outsource something that I'm so terrible at mm-hmm. that can go out and do that, that'll enhance my business. For me, it was ultimately when I hired the right person, it was an assistant that could do all the drafting because I don't know any of the drafting programs Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to sit down and learn it while I'm trying to work. Uh, And I had five babies at home. So I needed somebody that had that skill set that could scale things for me and put things in there and then help me find pieces that I wanted to put in there. So drafting and scaling things was really important to me early on. And then when uh, John left corporate America and we flipped houses back during the recession in like 2007, 2009, uh, when the housing market kind of took that dump in California, we really strategically had to look at each other and say, okay, what's the best option here? And I was still getting a lot of demand for business and it could stay busy. And, but my hands were tied with the kids. I was working part-time. Whereas he could stay home and he had that skill set that he could provide that to free up my time so I could take on more appointments and clients. And then he looked at me and said, how can I best help you? And he tried a project management role and we drove each other nuts because he's so (laughs) overly detailed and I'm a little bit more like, it's fine. Like the contractors know what they're doing. They'll figure it out. Like you don't need to tell them exactly. You need to tell them They know how to do it. Yeah. (laughs) So when he said, well, I can help with some of the billings and the financials, do you want help with that? And I'm like, yeah, that would be great. Take that off my plate and start tracking all that stuff. And that would be super helpful. So that's really what his role emerged into. And that's took that off my plate to free me up to do other things. It's all what it's taking a look at what you're good at, Mm -hmm. what you enjoy. You could be good at something and not enjoy it. But mm. taking a look at what you're good at and what you enjoy doing in your business, and then all of the other things that you may be proficient at, you may be good at, but you don't have to do it. You could have somebody else do it to free you up to do really the parts that you just enjoy. And then letting those people start to take responsibility for those things so that you're freed up to do more of what you like doing and you feel effective at doing. Yeah, that zone of genius work where exactly time just yeah. kind of. Slips by. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned 2007 to 2009, which I know is a triggering time for a lot of creatives. And then we've, we are in interesting conversations in DMs with some of our listeners and other designers that I'm, we're sort of like going backwards through the timeline here of, you know, Rebecca and I, maybe not as designers, but as adults or as working people, we have seen recession multiple times. And it's this cyclical kind of thing that happens. And even for me, like that that 2007 to 2009, I was working in my finance career, Sarah, still in banking. And so it was a different lens on it. But you having worked through it through design and, and from this design perspective, what would you want to say to designers who have never experienced it before and what it means. Because we get a lot of doom and gloom in the news about it, but I mm-hmm. we don't want to ignore it, but it's just like, what? how did also, you kind of I look at that strategy? From, I also hear from a lot of designers that have been around for a long time that just kind of gave up and quit, and they talk about it as like this thing that they just, like a trauma, you Stopped. know? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I think it, again, it's so individual. So like COVID did for a lot of designers are like, I just can't handle this. Like it's too much stress and anxiety. I'm out. And they said, Mm -hmm. peace out. I'm not taking on any more work or I can't handle whatever. It's interesting because recessions and more talk about them on TV become kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And even the super wealthy will be like, they want to be in vogue, like, oh, I should cut back or I should do this, right? Like, I shouldn't yeah, spend yeah. money. Even Everyone's if they have it, saving a little. they're like, I don't want to do it. I get a little nervous, right? And especially when you have a lot of clients that are tied to the stock market. So when I reflect back on the time back in 2007, 2009, I think there was a real willingness to take on all sorts of different types of projects that maybe mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily, meh, I didn't really want to come over and just do throw pillows and paint, but I can do throw pillows and paint. What saved us during the recession was the fires, to be honest. I know that sounds really crazy and weird, but Mm -hmm. when the fires hit, I saw an opportunity because I wasn't so busy that I got into renting furniture for people that had lost their homes. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and bought a whole bunch of furniture, styled their homes, and then charged their insurance company uh, to rent our furniture uh, while they were in there and they had to rebuild. So that was like a two-year That was a gravy train for two years. It was just a different type of revenue source that was tied to design, but wasn't necessarily around designing their house. It was around, I'm just going to get your house set up for you because you just lost your home. So I think there's always like those little opportunities to see, okay, so if this isn't available, what are my other possible revenue streams and opportunities that I can get involved in? So I was doing a lot more like paint color concepts when everybody wanted to paint their wall and accent wall, remember? And (laughs) or people moving and talking to more realtors about, you know, people still are going to move. Like regardless of an economy, you know, a recession, they're still are going to want to move. The benefit to being an interior design during recession is that we still have a housing shortage. We still have more people that live here that kind of that can get into a house. They still have floods. People still flood their kitchens. Rentals Mm -hmm. still flood. So it's really like when the design clients start to slow down, it's really looking at what are these other diversification strategies, looking at different revenue sources for what are the, who are the realtors I'm talking to for buying somebody buying a new home or do I create a new home special? Like I will come in and design your whole home for this discount if you sign up for this many rooms on your new house or I can turn this around quickly or I can help you style your home before you sell it. Um, because you have to move back East or you need new flooring. Like I'm doing a flooring special, like here's your, you know, carpet and, and vinyl to move into your new house. And we can get this whole thing done with paint in two weeks, you know, whatever your gimmick is or not gimmicky. Cause you're still, you're still fixing a need for them. You're still providing it, Mm -hmm. but maybe it's not like the full house luxury designed room. Maybe it is just to kind of keep the doors open and keep that Mm -hmm. revenue coming in. So it's just different. I definitely think there's that mindset of just knowing you can pivot in some way. So 2009, I was a graphic designer prior to this and in marketing. And I actually started a little marketing creative business with a partner in 2009. And everyone thought we were crazy. But that was such a launch for us because every in-house team was getting laid off corporations. So they were laying off all of their creatives. So we just fit this niche where we could just come in project by project and they weren't paying somebody's salary. Mm-hmm. And that's how we grew. So there's always a, yeah, there's just always a way if you aren't just stuck in your ways, which is 
right. kind of like yeah. our whole ethos right. with Hot Young Designers Club is just like think in a way that's not just stuck. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you just like you're creative with room design, you have to be creative with your business. And so you're going to have to think of other ways to generate whatever revenue stream. And then that just goes back to like knowing what it takes, you knowing that you have a savings reserve of however, mm-hmm. you know, like for us, we're a larger team, right? So if the economy takes a dive tomorrow and we have to cut back, I have to cut back. And I'm just going to have to do the same job with less people in order to right. make payroll. But I also know that we have a three to six month reserve to carry that should that happen. So I'm not going to lose my house. I'm not going to lose, you know, the the business because I've planned ahead to make sure that, you know, I know what it takes to make payroll every two weeks. And I know, you know, what our projects look like. So if everything kind of dried up, then I either need to scale back, ride out the storm and mm. hang on as, as long as I can or furlough. And that's just, it's acting quickly and not like waiting until it's too late because you didn't know you were losing money over the last three months or whatever. So it's really, like you said, pivoting, looking at what other opportunities there are and then doing whatever it takes if you want to keep keep that longevity, I guess. A couple of things right. stand out about that for me. Like one is there's this whole like lack of, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't think it's ego or pride, but I, I think it's just the humility that we approach our businesses with of like, I would love to be able to still say at some point that I am only this, prestigious full service Mm -hmm. interior design firm. But you know what would make me happier is still being in business at the end of whatever comes. (laughs) Yeah. That would make me happy. Like the hit to your ego. Yeah. yeah, Like the hit to my ego of losing my business is so much worse than saying, you know what? We're taking on more independent work. We have some promotional things. We're also doing something different. It's, I would still rather get through it and be able to say I'm a designer and I'm doing this and this is still my business at the end of whatever hardships we face, whether it's recession or we have to move our business for or a pandemic or we we have to move with a spouse across country and start over. It's like for me that that lack of ego or pride getting in the way of saying I still have this. I I still have the thing that makes me happy. It just looks a little different for right now, and it doesn't mean it's forever you're the flooring special or the styling special it it's just keeping your business and then that other idea that you shared that really jumped at me was back to what you were talking about with do you even know that you're losing money which goes back right back to like reporting reporting Mm -hmm. talking to your cpa talking to your bookkeeper and maybe if designers are worried it's more frequent check-ins on that stuff if they don't know how to read it on their own maybe you keep a tighter pulse on it when you're feeling anxious or when you you're feeling worried is check on it more frequently, not to the point that you like make yourself nuts, but check it enough that you feel like, okay, yes, our pipeline is still solid right now, or it's not. And the the more knowledge we have about that, the less, you know, trepidation and, and fright that we instill in ourselves every day. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that you it takes a certain personality, right? Some people can get really overwhelmed by that. Like you said, some people it's the ego or it's not even worth it to work for me if I just am selling pillows or doing a special or something like that. Yeah. This started as a business that was a hobby for me. Like I was only working part-time and it was enough to like make a car payment on a used little convertible because I drove a huge suburban at the time and I thought <laughs> And I had car seats all in the back. And I'm like, I just want to be able to go get my nails done in a cute little convertible. Like I, 
And if that's all I make $400 a month, then that's all I need. That's all I need. And then as it grew and all of a sudden, you know, come 2007, nine, I'm now responsible for feeding five kids and meeting our expenses and our mortgage and Mm. wanting to do things. You get real scrappy, right? And you go, okay, what do I need to do? Like you just get down and you just do it. And I'm, my personality type is more of like, I don't need to have a plan in place before I go do it. I just Mm -hmm. do it. And then I figure out the details and what worked and what didn't. So I just try it and I fail. I can't even tell you how many times I've failed because you just do it. And then you say, okay, well that didn't work. And you do something else until something sticks. But with this business specifically, I used to hyper niche pre-COVID into just kitchens, get in and get out. Like, four month project. I wouldn't take on a full house project. I would, if they would want a full house project, I would say, you know what? We take on one room at a time, or we want to see how you are. Like, let's get this going. And then if you want to add on, we can add on these other two rooms or whatever. But for now, let's just Mm -hmm. like get this kitchen done. Mm -hmm. And it was good for me because I totally have short attention span and I just want to get in and get out. Like if somebody's driving me nuts, I don't want to be with you for two years, right? Mm -hmm. Like just let me get in and finish and then uh, finish up. (laughs) But we strategically made a decision during COVID to start to take on larger full-scale remodel projects and design projects that had a two to three-year horizon with clients that are insulated a little bit from the ups and downs of the stock market because they're in a position that may be different. And I can't rely on those projects to meet all of our financial obligations because I need more month-to-month income coming in to meet our month to month expenses. But when you get a big project like that and you spread it out over a year, it gives me some job security and knowing Mm -hmm. that whatever ups and downs we're going to have on some of our key projects, I still have these signature projects that will mostly keep the business in general afloat. So it was really strategically looking at the size and types of projects that we were taking and saying, okay, let's diversify. We can take this many key projects per design team. We can take this many signature projects, and then we can prioritize what's more important. If somebody needs to pull back over here, we can go forward over here. And so it really was making sure that um, we didn't overwhelm ourselves with too many long-term and we weren't getting the cash flow, and that we didn't overcommit to too many small ones where if people pulled out all at once it would be with us left holding the bag, you know, with no, with right. no income, uh, no security. So that's really, that diversification really helped us, you know, kind of keep that in check. Are your projects all based in San Diego or do you work nationally? They're all within about a 10 to 15 mile radius of our showroom. And uh, except for, uh, we did a project up in Laguna Beach, which again was the first time I'd taken anything outside of our area because for us, the more profitable projects are the ones where we're the general contractors, yeah. not design only. So when we do design yeah. only, it's it's just hourly. It's not really as big of a sale and you still are doing the same amount of work, but you're not getting any profit on any of the you know, plumbing fixtures or the doing the actual labor. Like we're not getting any, any cut of that. So uh, we do those like, again, as part of that diversification, but most of our projects are in San Diego and I don't general contract out of state. Yeah, that seems like that would be a whole new kind of nightmare. Yeah, yeah it would be a nightmare. Yeah, it, it's, it's <laughs> close to impossible, really. I mean, you can 
you know, help design project manage and stuff like that on projects out of state or fly out there to go on a site check and stuff. But to manage a team, there's just too many, you have to be on site like every day on projects yeah. to, to effectively manage. Yeah. Right. To be the GC. Mm-hmm. You mentioned your showroom mm-hmm. and that's, that's how long have you been in that space? This space we just moved into about a year ago. So we had a previous showroom that was a lot smaller, and then we moved into a larger showroom, a little bit more coastal. So we uh, moved away. It's just kind of followed to wherever I live. And so we personally moved away from the old area. And so I'm like, great, showroom's going too. So I'm like, my house is like a half mile from my showroom, which is great. Oh, easy. So Yeah, easy, like walkable. Do you you see clients in the showroom for like consumer sales or is it only like project meetings and, you know, long-term project clients that go there? Our whole team works out of the showroom. So we have it set up kind of like an apartment or a house where you walk in and there's like a mudroom and then there's a dining table and then there's a big family room, lounge area. And then we have a full uh, working kitchen and pantry area. And then I have my office, which I'm in now. We have a sample room and then we have a storage area. And so our sample room houses all of our samples. That's where we do all our presentations with clients. We don't typically have, we're not like a shopping showroom or like a retail showroom where people come in. We have product on the floor that will pull for styling clients' spaces. And when clients come in, they can certainly shop, but we have more special events in our showroom. So we're going to have like an art wine night, which gets people in, looks at what we can do. We can talk to them, but it's not like a, I'm going to go pop over and buy a rug or that I'm stocking a lot of retail because I'm I'm not. It's mostly a working space for us. Do you have an interest in doing that? Retail? Retail? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of rather poke out my eyes, but... <laughs> You're our people, Susan, because we do not... We don't like that idea for ourselves either, so... I hate the idea of retail. It really is. Retail is brutal because you have to be open the weekends and the evenings. You have to track inventory. Yeah, yeah. You have to keep inventory. You have to, it's a, a hell of an accounting job. People are crazy. Um, I'm just going to say it. I mean, they really are. Uh, Joe Q Public yeah. that shops mm-hmm. and wants to shop and pick your brain for three hours, buy one thing, and then they bring it back the following week. I just, oh I have no tolerance for that. So I don't, Typically, I mean, there are pottery barns and crate and barrels for a reason, and and they mm-hmm. give you free designers. And if that's the level of design you're after, then I would go there. But our showroom is, you know, I want to pick unique things and cool stuff, but it's a whole other business model. And unless yeah. I had somebody that I could say, hey, listen, I'll pay you this much and you handle all of it. And it's a standalone business outside of us. Yeah. Plus the stuff you that I like, and I feel like. That's my yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Like you own it, you you staff it, you do all of it. That's fine. I think the other issue is that there's, I like so many different designs that I've never been able to really hone in. And there are a lot of designers. They always tell you to do this as a designer is to hone in on your signature look on like your Mm -hmm. brand. What's your brand? So, right. So we have people that are really good at it, like the amber interiors of the world, they have that look. Mm-hmm. And Kristen Forgione has organic desert living, right? And Jean Stouffer has her mm-hmm. old, you know, back East was, you know, uh, Michigan kind of, you know, traditional, modern, traditional look. And when you see a portfolio photo of any of those designers, you can go, oh, that's so-and-so, or that's mm-hmm. her style. I've never really right. had that. 
And I've never really wanted it, to be honest. Like I know I should, but there are so many different designs that I like that my store would be a hot mess because (laughs) I would have a little traditional and I'd have a little West Coast modern and I'd have some funky, quirky stuff like my my flamingo. Cute. So (laughs) I think I would be all over the map that it would not be cohesive. And I think people are weird and I don't want them in and out of my life every day. So. Okay. But I <laughs> I, feel I know that. that it's it's one of those things you like want to explore the creativity of where something could take you with every client and like yeah. I I don't think when I look at I mean of course your the work that you put together through on online in your portfolio of course you you curate out of all your projects the ones that you feel the proudest of or feel really like we could do more of these and that would be great. But I feel like there there are common threads that pull through it. Yeah. And so I don't think it's necessarily like a, a, a schizophrenic, like every yeah. design is so off the wall different that nobody knows right. what you're capable of. I think it definitely right. shows like there are a lot of cool ideas here. There's some amazing ideas in custom cabinetry and, and you know, finish yeah. details. And I think when clients can see like, oh, wait, there's a range to this art that Savvy right. can do. Like they're, they know, okay, whatever thing we can create or come up with, they will help us make it a reality. They'll be able to figure it out because we see there's this diversity in the projects. And I think, you know, that sometimes is more important than just, well, they can definitely do this one style for me. And that's the only thing I need. So, right. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you're right. I think you can look at our portfolio overall and see some of those common threads, and I rebelled a little bit against the whole, yeah, everything being neutral. I like color. I just do. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I always like to have some sort of pop of color if my clients will allow it somewhere. And so I think that's somewhat common. And I think what I'm doing was doing three, five years ago is different than what I'm doing today, which will be different in another two to three years. Because um, I think being older, I have a fear of getting stagnant and feeling like my designs are what I was doing 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or I only yeah. you know, can do this style. And I want to keep part of what keeps design so fun for me is being able to challenge myself and try new things and come up with new ideas. And so I want to be on that more innovative edge than I want to be like, oh, she's that old designer that only does that pinch pleat drape, <laughs> right? So, the tried and true. Yeah. Okay, can we talk for a second about this magic mirror thing that you put in your reels? Oh, yeah, my magic square. Yeah. So Sean and I were like obsessing about it a couple weeks ago when you first posted it. Yeah. So what is it? Like it's just a uh, a box. Yeah, it really is. It's a box. Uh, One of my employees made it for me. So it's just a square base with two side pieces, like a box. And mirror here and mirror here. And so it's just a it's just to put a tile in and then you can see the repeat. Or I saw it as, it yeah, wallpaper. Yeah. You what? I started he's gonna put, it, put it in, in our, our notes. show notes because oh, if okay, anyone cool. all anyone listening hasn't seen yeah. it. Like it was just like, why is this blowing my mind? Like why so didn't simple. I think it is? Like, yeah. I saw I started yeah. doing research and I guess it's big with quilters. Um, they use it with their quilting um, blocks. Yeah. 
I saw it uh, at a showroom probably about two years ago uh, up in Orange County. I walked in and they had, and I'm like, I have to have this. I have to like, and so we came home and made it. It's so and fun. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That was fun. I think it's just anything we can do to make visualization more fun for clients or for yeah. our, or for ourselves. When you're pulling, you're like, is this going to be an interesting tile or is this going to be ugly when we do yeah. it? Like, yeah, it's really like or like push really creativity thing. to like do multiple tiles, like a mix. Yeah. Like, I think it yeah. could be easier to play and try something Definitely. accidentally interesting. Yeah. Also, I wanted to just say like your summer schedule. <laughs> yeah. So tell us what you do? Um, so when my kids were little over the summer, so, you know, if anybody's a parent out there and you have little kids, like you spend the summers driving them from friend's house to friend's house and you never Mm -hmm. see them. Right. And so I was working while they were in school and I feel really fortunate in that John and I both could work when they were in school and then we were home in the afternoons with them. So we got to spend a lot of time with the kids, but there were times when I was like working till late or he was working late and they're doing their homework and we're all there and it's like, go, 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 go. And I didn't want to spend the summer driving them to the beach and back and picking them up and taking them here and having their friend over. Like it was it was overwhelming with five because they mm-hmm. it felt like, oh my God, all I'm going to be doing all summer is trying to create their play dates for them because they're not in school. Yeah. So right. we have always loved going to Lake Tahoe and I have uh, extended family up there and I've, we've been going up there since we started dating like you know, 30, 40 years ago. My dad had, used to have a house up there when I was a kid. And so I said, that's it. We're going to live up there over the summers when they were little. And I would take them out of school and they would hate it. And they would yell and complain. And can I stay home and see all my friends? And I said, no. And we left the day after school got out and we'd pack them all up and we'd drive them up to Tahoe. We lived there for six to eight weeks over the summer. And I would just tell my clients back when I didn't have such a big team, listen, like I'm not here over the summer. So get your projects in now. I can do the design work while I'm up there. And then when we get back, we can start it or set up your new consults for when I get back in August, uh, when the kids are back in school. And I told them I work a teacher schedule. Like I take Mm -hmm. that summer and I spend it with the kids. It was interesting because while we were in it and the kids were doing it, they hated it, right? It was always, when can I go back and see my friends? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then when we stopped doing it, it was like, they realized that like this last year, just my husband and I went up and the kids went up for a little bit because they're all adults now. And they all are like, I wish we could go back to when we were kids and lived up here. Wish we could really wish, you know, I could have been up here longer. Or I remember when we used to do this and they'd get summer jobs and they'd work at the ice cream place or at the beach hostess stand or whatever. But it was great because it gave me like a mental break from the day to day. And client, most clients were on vacation anyway, and they were vacationing with their family. So I wasn't like getting a ton done, but I just planned my year in that way that summers, I, I don't want to live here. I want to be somewhere else. And it gave me time, really good quality time with the kids because they were forced to go out on the boat and do fun things. And so they got forced family fun. So it was good. (laughs) God, mom. (laughs) Making me have fun all summer. Well, yeah. Like I just feel like Summer is just, I mean, I only have one and it's just mm-hmm. the added, everything just crumbles. It just feels so like the life disintegrates in like yes. kind of a nice way in some ways because everything's fluid yeah. and casual. But in other ways, it's just, I don't know. I just yeah. like need. It's not good quality. And, and no, it's funny it because like, 
my clients, especially my repeat clients, they knew that I would take every summer off. So I would always start getting, I was like client training. They knew. Yeah. So they would call me in April and May and start to set up their projects so that I could get out there and do measures before I left. And then I could just design wow. and like email them. You know, before we had all these great project management tools, it was great because they knew I wasn't going to be there. And then they're like, okay, great. I want to get on your calendar as soon as you get back or let's start construction or I'd order all the furniture over the summer and then wait for it to come in. And then I'd come back and do an install. And so it, it they started, the thing is, is that if you set what your Boundary. limits and boundaries are of what you want and what you're good at and what is enjoyable to you to make it work, they will respond and learn from that. And yeah. um, you, you might get one or two clients. It's like, I'm not going to wait. And you're like, okay, well, you know, it's just luck of the draw and you have to be willing mm -hmm. to kind of give up that opportunity. And I was, I was willing to give that up at the time. So yeah. Cause it's motivating to them. I did it in a really small way this summer where I, it's like my only, I'm really bad at setting boundaries. So yeah. I, but I said no in-home consultations this summer. Like I, yeah. cause I kind of do a lot of them uh -huh. and it actually kind of did it where I did have people book like a month or two, like six weeks ahead, like two mm -hmm. people, but it did yeah. feel like, okay, yeah. I got a tiny taste of it. Everything's like automated to where they can schedule that out. And yeah, they were really respectful of it. I had, and then people were like, I think you might be back now, but I know you were taking the summer of doing, yeah. you weren't doing these anymore. So it's actually yeah. kind of nice. You, you're still kind of do it though, right? You still... I do. Well, I'm in this weird uh, stage of life right now where all of our kids are in San Diego and all but like one over the summer was in San Diego. And so John and I still want to be up at the lake over the summer because we love it up there and I love the break, but I love my kids more. And mm -hmm. weirdly enough, I like them and I like hanging out with them and having them come mm -hmm. over for Sunday dinners. And I thought, what are we doing up here by ourselves right now? Like there's going to come a time when they're going to be busy and out traveling with their own families and doing things that we can come up here. But for right now, if they're willing to come over for dinner on Sunday night, then I'm going to like try it. So we broke it up and I went for three weeks, came back for a couple of weeks and then went back up for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And that worked out. Okay. We're still trying to, I think when we have grandkids, we're just basically going to kidnap them up there for the summer yeah. and let their parents have a break. Ship and them to the lake. Exactly. Oh, Ship them to grandma and grandpa up at the lake. And that would be like my dream life. Right. Um, Everyone's so, dream life. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. love that. That's awesome. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. I think, you know, part of what, I pick up from from what you share online and even our conversation today is just how important like this connection and this familial atmosphere is. And I feel like that when that's part of just your DNA, it can't help but spread to your company. But then for you, it's also spread into your community by way of your nonprofit, Savvy Giving by Design. Mm -hmm. Can you share with the listeners more about that and what prompted it to start? Yeah. So it really started, uh, I'd always been uh, somewhat of a community member, like volunteer, right? I've always, volunteerism has always played an important part of my life ever since I was young. Uh, and I don't know why, it's just, it's something that always made me feel really good. And so I just kind of kept doing it. Back in 2014, I was just kind of at that stage in the business where I was feeling kind of burnout and I was feeling like people, you know, let's, I mean, like I said, I'm going to be blunt and this is a podcast, but like 
people can be annoying. They just can't. Yeah. And when mm-hmm. you deliver a sofa and they, they send you a note that they're devastated that, uh, dev- and I use the word devastated that there's th- a couple threads hanging out of the back of their custom sofa that, you know, I, I don't understand this was custom. Why weren't those two little threads clipped or oh a welt goodness. isn't perfectly straight or, the finish isn't consistent on your hand finished table on the top to the base. Like there's a slight variation in the color and they're, they're crushed, right? Because there's so much emotion wrapped up in money and Mm -hmm. in their expectations and all of these things. And also in a luxury population, you work with people that, that have a certain privilege and feel entitled to your time, your services, your, you know, you are there to serve them, not work with them, but work for them. Right. So I was feeling a little like, Oh God, you know, what am I doing? I'm working with this really luxury population. How is it really having an impact? And so I was looking for some way to use uh, what I could offer in a way that felt appreciated and impactful. And somebody had reached out that their uh, friend's daughter had just been diagnosed with cancer and they wanted to post a meal train link on one of my social media sites. And I had built up this like savvy steals and deals. It's this like buy sell page uh, that was super popular at the time that I would build up that built up. And so I had this community base that was already there. And I said, yeah, you can post that link, but like, I don't cook because I hate cooking. And so I wouldn't be able to provide a meal, but do you think she might want her room done? Like, is there something I can help her with her room to make it a little bit nicer? And she's like, I'll ask. And surprisingly they said, yeah. And so I went over and met with this 14 year old and I walked into her bedroom and it was a typical 14 year old's room. It was a really bright turquoise. It was no closet doors. It was no lampshade on the lamp. It was broken, tattered blinds (laughs) and carpet. Right. And the furniture was misscaled into the room. So some of the furniture pieces were larger than what I would have put in there and uh, not super high quality and nothing really special about it. And I thought, wow, this girl's going to come home from treatment for a year. She had to go through 42 rounds of chemo. Oh my God. And uh, she was going to be in treatment for a full year. And I thought, how do you come back from the hospital not feeling well and be in this space uh, day after day after day and be somewhat quarantined? Mm -hmm. So I got the contractors together. Within three days, we had raised like six grand from our community members. And I just put it out there like, hey, we want to redo a room. And then I started thinking about the health consequences of what we were doing to her room. Like, how is this Mm going to impact her diagnosis and how she felt in her room? So, you know, we wanted the low VOC paints. We wanted good solid surface floor and get that icky carpet out of there and put down some solid surface floors, get furniture that scaled correctly, get her a window covering that like works and some lighting, overhead lighting that can light the room up or dim down if she needed it to dim. All of those things, in addition to the aesthetics, I was so nervous, more so than any client I had met with. Mm -hmm. I went over to meet with her to find out what she wanted. And she said, I want one of those ceilings that has all that fabric that kind of like gathers in the (laughs) middle. And I said, that is beautiful, but that's going to have so much dust in it. And I don't know that that's going to be the healthiest thing for you, but what Mm -hmm. if we did this? And she's like, and her eyes lit up and she got super excited. And so we did the room. And from then I was just hooked because it was such a dramatic makeover Mm -hmm. transformation. And 
she just couldn't stop talking afterwards about how she just wanted to be in her room all the time. That's all mm-hmm. she wanted to do was be in her room. That's I want to be in my room, be in my room. And so that's when we started doing more and more. And I started creating a whole program around making over children's rooms that were in a crisis. And we, one of my clients helped to become a 501c3. And then after about three years, I did a pilot chapter out of Mobile, Alabama with Kate Waite Designs, Caitlin Waite. And I taught her how I did it in San Diego to see if it would work somewhere else. And so she started a chapter and she was our first chapter. And then now we've got 11 chapters and uh, we have a pop-up design program too, where we pair designers across the country to do virtual design and help with design with Make-A-Wish chapters across the country. So uh, we hook uh, all of those guys up to do design work um, because the Make-A-Wish designers don't, I mean, the Make-A-Wish Granters aren't designers and they don't know how to select certain things for rooms that are the best choices for those kids. So the designers work with the wish granters to do the pro bono design work so that the wish granters can implement the designs. That's awesome. I didn't realize you had the different chapters. Is that mm-hmm. something that you're growing or is there opportunity for designers to do? Yeah. There is. So uh, we uh, had grown to about 15 chapters prior to COVID. Um, House was one of our major sponsors. They paid all of our legal fees to get each Mm -hmm. chapter initiated. And each runs as an independent nonprofit, but they operate under our group exemption. And then when COVID hit, a lot of businesses, like everybody else, they either thrived or they struggled. Some of the businesses that struggled weren't able to keep up with either the fundraising demands or uh, the nonprofit demands with uh, coordinating volunteers and board members. So they elected to close their chapters and they didn't want to continue forward. And so that's why we came with the pop-up design program because it gives designers an opportunity to not have the full burden of a chapter, but do some pop-up design. So we scaled back to 11 really strong chapters and we're now looking at opening one or two this next next year and finding uh, designers that have good experience, that understand construction, that understand running a nonprofit or volunteerism and want to be in there for the long haul. And we usually start them out with a few pop-up design opportunities. And then if they feel successful at that, then we'll consider opening a full chapter. But we want to make sure whatever chapters we open, that we're getting good quality. I'd rather have good quality than a ton of chapters that don't do anything. Yeah. I want, right. I want people that are actually going to execute. But to date, we've done over like 100 spaces nationwide of different mm. kids' rooms and stuff. And we've got some really, really strong designers but um, and uh, chapters throughout the country. So that's kind of where we are right now, kind of recovering from COVID. But yeah, I'm sure. The pop-up opportunities, is that something people, designers can apply for? Mm-hmm. They can reach out uh, to be involved as a pop-up. So we put you kind of on our virtual Rolodex, if you will. And then if we get, like we had a, a make a couple Make-A-Wish rooms were pretty active in Nevada for their Southern Nevada chapter for Make-A-Wish. And uh, they don't have a lot of designers in their area. Mm-hmm. And so oh. um, they've asked to partner up uh, with us. And we partnered them with one of our chapter leaders in New Jersey, uh, Anastasia, mm-hmm. who did some of the virtual room design. Or like in the Bay Area, we don't have a full chapter up in the Bay Area, but Make-A-Wish up there had a couple rooms. So we found a Bay Area designer that could work with that Make-A-Wish up there to provide some of the design assistance and help. So it's still emerging and growing. And um, 
you know, we have a program director that helps coordinate and put all of those pieces and parts together. And we're talking to a couple designers out in New York to do the same thing uh, in the next couple of weeks. So it's evolving, it's emerging. Pop-up is definitely the way to kind of register, get trained, and then uh, be on our Rolodex so that we can call you. But I like to go through for at least an hour and explain why we make this, not what we make, from a selection, but why we make those selections. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, as I always say, it's about the why, not the what. I don't know. I, I don't want to know what you designed. I want to know why you designed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we're working on now is to kind of grow that program. How would you want designers to find that avenue? Mm-hmm. I would say they can go on our website, savvygivingbydesign.org. And then there uh, should be on there a form to fill out if you want to be involved as a pop-up designer. And then our program director reaches out. And then typically we schedule a training every quarter, once a quarter. And then if we uh, get a couple designers to train, then I get on a Zoom with them and kind of talk to them about what the process looks like. It's a different process than a regular design client and that... With a regular design client, you're working on budget, you're working on uh, storyboards and you're showing them everything and then you're getting their approval and everything has to go through that approval process. With our Savvy Giving by Design, we really give creative freedom to the designer and we do a little bit of intake with the family, but we don't tell them what we're doing. So it's Mm -hmm. all at no cost to the family and we want to hit some of the things that they want. But most kids, especially those that have never been exposed to interior design before, don't know what's possible. And since right. it's no, you know, out of pocket money for them, right? We we're gonna <laughs> do it. If you don't like it, like you can dish it. But most everybody loves it, right? So we come in yeah. and they don't even know what's possible. So we're designing with function in mind, but picking all the aesthetic things that we think they like, like your favorite colors, and do you want florals? Do you like graphics? Do you like this? Once mm-hmm. we do that, we do it. But then we show up. We're one and done. So you meet with them once. You go away for six to eight weeks, you design it all up, you order everything, and then you're installing on that last day. So you're not going back and forth to the house several times. We try to be like a little sliver of their experience because they've got everybody looking for their time, the doctors and nurses and treatment, Mm -hmm. and they're so overwhelmed that we just want to be that one little sliver of hope and joy and come in for all the smiles and then we're out. And then we like let them do their thing. So really it's an entirely different process. And once I train on that, it just makes the whole process so much easier, right? Because you're just designing something you know is going to look good and is reflective of what they want. And they're not having to go through that whole approval process with you. All the decisions that are overwhelming. Yeah. 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 It's a fantastic way to feel like, I don't know, as designers, it's always like, well, yeah, we're not, we're not curing cancer. We're making houses pretty. We're making them functional, but like there's mm-hmm. so much inherent value in doing that for people, especially when you're not at your best, when you're unwell, when you need extra mm-hmm. support and help. It's like, then you really realize how important it is that our environment nurtures us back and, and mm-hmm. you don't notice it when you're in perfect health as much. So it's just such a yeah. fantastic way to feel like, hey, we're not going to fix every problem they have, but we can really help you know change right. someone's way of life little by little for them. That's really fantastic. It's interesting too, because, and I'll add that, you know, the studies have shown that, you know, our space contributes up to 30% of our healing, right? So when you think Mm -hmm. about designing a space for a child in a medical crisis, 
if you create seating areas for extended family or friends to come over, they stay longer, which Mm -hmm. improves the mood of a child. If you create soft, comfortable bed for them to sleep in, I mean, we've done rooms for kids that haven't even had a mattress. You know, they've had foam on a board or they don't have window coverings and they can't sleep because the sun's blaring into their room or it's getting overheated or they don't have AC. Like a lot of the really basic needs that most of a luxury population might take for granted are things that these kids don't even have. So to create an environment where when they are sick and they are immunocompromised, which could slow down and halt their treatment if they get an infection, that carpet is out of there. They're not going to get an infection Mm -hmm. on that carpet anymore, right? So it's increasing their opportunity to heal. And that's really where our focus is on on trauma-informed design decisions Mm -hmm. and how we're working with the families to make it as easy as possible, but to create an environment where they will heal or they have the best chance of healing and being in their space versus we're not solely focused on how it looks, although that's obviously a huge component of what we do, but it's really about how it's functioning for them. Yeah. The form and the function. Cause the hospital room, like on the opposite end, it's highly sterile and clean and all that, but it is not giving anyone fantasies of hanging out there longer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. So it's, it does, it can have a real impact on their healing and on their treatment and everything else. Cause they are, they're stuck at home. So yeah, it brings comfort. Yeah. Well, I love that. I'm going to look more into it. Well, thank you so much, Susan. I feel like I need you to be my life coach. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might listen back to this one and take some notes of my own episode. (laughs) Good. There's so much more. I mean, we could obviously talk for hours and hours, right? Because there's so many little nuances. And believe me when I say that I've made every mistake in the book over the years and have tried all the different things until we landed on something that I feel it, that works, but it is, I, I could tell you all the things not to do, put it that way. So, but you keep adjusting and trying yeah. new things and not giving up, which I think is like yeah. the biggest lesson that, I mean, I've had some pretty frustrating last few weeks where I'm like, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore, right. but no, I just need to adjust and change something probably a couple things, get some help, get some layers between me and my emotion, my personal emotions and the client's personal emotions or lack thereof. Yeah. (laughs) It's always an opportunity. (laughs) I mean, anytime you have a client conflict, anytime you have something that didn't go the way you you had hoped or envisioned it would go, Mm -hmm. it is always an opportunity to figure out your process and what needs to be tweaked so that it doesn't happen again. There's always an, and we're always going to make mistakes, right? There's always something to learn. You're always going to make a mistake. You'll, I always tell my team, like, you're going to make better mistakes tomorrow. Promise you, you know? Um, (laughs) So you just have to accept it and move on, but it's always an opportunity to go back and reflect on it and pivot. Like you said, tweak it, do Mm -hmm. create a process to where you can avoid that going forward because it's usually some deficiency that our ego may not let us look at. And we need to figure Mm -hmm. out how to make it so that we're happier at the end of the day, because if you're going to last in this business, you have to manage the stress and you have to manage the adversity. Otherwise you get, you get burnout way too fast. And we've all been there, but it's yeah. really about taking care of you and making you the best you and then outsourcing whatever else you can and making it, making it work so that you're there the long term, the long haul. Yes. Okay. Taking it to heart. 
not just for us, but I know, I know there's hotties listening who are like, okay, I needed someone to get in my ear and tell me this again, because it just takes that repetition to get there. So Mm -hmm. we're, I totally appreciate how much you kind of laid bare for us. And we love having that transparency with all of our guests, but thank you for being open to doing that with us. It's, it's something that definitely helps designers grow and challenge themselves to think differently about stuff. So thank you for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And what is the best place for our listeners to find you? Um, probably on our Instagram account inside by savvy. So inside is the name of our showroom and it's a capital S I D E for savvy interiors design experience. So that's what that acronym is, but inside is the name of our showroom. And so I renamed our account inside by savvy. Um, so we are on Facebook on a Facebook group, which is more about our education and behind the scenes. Uh, we're on Instagram, which is a little more of our portfolio and Savvy Giving by Design is a Facebook group and an Instagram. And then we're also on TikTok, I think. And we are, I'm not on LinkedIn. <laughs> because I haven't done the LinkedIn thing, but we are doing the TikTok and the Reels part. So yeah. it's a part of it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So you can find us on all of those. Okay. Definitely yeah. going to check off some. I'm, I'm going to go find you on TikTok. Oh, cool. Yeah. Don't get too yeah. so. <laughs> much. It's a little hit and mess over there. So it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us. So. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. I appreciate yeah. it. Got it. So until next time, stay hot, designers. Thanks for listening to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. For more on what we talked about today, check out the show notes. Your support helps us grow, so share with your design besties. And subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our conversations continue on Instagram. And be sure to download our monthly resources on our website and our Patreon. 